who on the cross through wood and nails has wrought man's full salvation. Wield well thy tools in our hearts thy workshop, that we who come to thee rough-hewn may be fashioned into a truer beauty by thy hand, who with the Father and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God, forever and ever. Amen. We are in Revelation chapter 2 today, verses 12 through 17, so if you have your Bibles, um, please uh, open them. And we're going to go ahead and read through these verses, and then we'll come back and take a closer look. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also have some of you who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, for if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. We have been going through the seven letters to the seven churches lately, and we've taken a look at two of them so far. We took a look at Jesus' words to the church in Ephesus. We said that Ephesus was an amazing church in an amazing city, and it was commended for its hard work. Jesus said to that church, I know your hard work, not only their hard work, but their fidelity. Uh, they had been loyal to the truth of the gospel. They had not faltered on these things, and they had been willing to be thought intolerant when it came to matters of the truth. Uh, they were not concerned with being politically correct, is the way we would put it today. So they were a hard-working church, they were an orthodox church, but Jesus said he had one thing against that church in Ephesus, and that was the fact that it had forsaken its first love, which is to say they were still doing the great religious works, but they were doing them for all the wrong reasons. They were going through the motions, uh, they were caring for the poor, but their heart was really not in it. They had forgotten Jesus Christ and the real motivation. This was this second generation of believers. And we ask the question, is that the case with us? I pointed out when we began this study that the whole point of these seven letters to the seven churches is for us to examine ourselves in the light of what Jesus says to these churches. We fit in here somewhere. It's like reading through one of the parables of Jesus. You're supposed to find your place in the parable. Who am I in this story? Well, this is meant to be a bellwether for us. It's meant to be a, a diagnostic device by which we determine what kind of a church we are. Are, are we like that church in Ephesus, doing all the right things but for all the wrong reasons? Is our heart really in it? We took a look not only at the church in Ephesus, however, we also took a look at the church in Smyrna. Now, church in Smyrna was a remarkable church. It's one of only two churches that Jesus mentions here in Revelation about which he has nothing negative. I asked the question, wouldn't it be nice to be a part of a church about which Christ has nothing negative to say? But nevertheless, this was a 
hard-pressed church. To begin with, it was a very poor church, abject poverty. Much of what they had had been taken away because of their faith to the gospel. They had literally, many of them lost their homes, lost their livelihoods as a result of being faithful to Jesus Christ. It was a persecuted church. This was a church that was literally under the sword. We told the story of Polycarp, who was the 11th martyr in that church. This was a church that was suffering greatly, literally for the sake of the gospel. And it was for this reason, because they were willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel, that Jesus says they were a praiseworthy church. And we asked the question at the end last time, um, do Christians suffer today? The obvious answer, of course, is that they do. We pointed out that in the 20th century, more Christians died for their faith than in all previous centuries combined. But really, the pressing question is not, are Christians suffering today, but are we suffering for the sake of the gospel? Jesus makes it very clear that suffering is a mark of the true church. One of the things that He said to His disciples prior to His resurrection, He said that if the world mistreated Me, the world is going to mistreat you. No master or no servant is greater than his master. If the world hated Me, the world is going to hate you. Well, if Jesus spoke the truth and was crucified for it, are we willing to speak the truth today? I wonder about that. I really do. John Stott, who wrote a wonderful little book on Jesus' seven letters to the seven churches called What Christ Thinks of the Church, said this. He said, we who are Christians in the Western church do not suffer much. Now, just listen to these words closely. He said, the ugly truth is that we avoid suffering by compromise. Our moral standards are not noticeably higher than those of the world. Our lives do not challenge and rebuke unbelievers by their integrity, purity, or love. The world sees in us nothing to hate. We mind our own business lest anyone should be offended. We hold our tongues lest anybody be embarrassed. We avoid suffering by loving the very world that killed our Lord Jesus Christ. Is that the case with us? You know, it's one of the things that I love about the South, not having come from the South, although I married a Southerner, is that Southerners are polite, much more so, quite frankly, than Pennsylvanians. If you don't believe me, walk through the streets of Philadelphia sometime or Pittsburgh and you'll discover that they're not nearly as polite. It's one of the things when my family from Pennsylvania comes down here, they're always awed by the fact that somebody always speaks to them on the street. It's a wonderful thing. However, it can be a liability because sometimes we can be so painfully polite, so concerned with not offending someone that we don't defend the honor of our Lord Jesus Christ. Gentlemen, just ask yourself this question. If you were walking down the street and a man came up and insulted your wife, would you just stand there silent? Well, there's a woman that says, better not. <laughs> no, you would defend the, the honor of your wife, wouldn't you? But yet, Jesus Christ is constantly in our culture, vilified and and who knows what, abused, spiritually, verbally. And how often do we just sit there silent? We do nothing. We do nothing to defend the very Lord who gave up everything for us. We mind our own business lest anyone should be offended. We hold our tongues lest anybody be embarrassed. Are we like the church the church that is willing to suffer, the church in Smyrna. 
Well, we come now to the third church today, and that is this church in Pergamum. It's different from the two that we've already met. It's different from Ephesus. It's different from Smyrna. And the reason why um, we are given these seven churches, as I said, these seven churches, that number seven is a number of perfection. These seven churches represent the church worldwide, the church universal, the church Catholic. So if we say, well, we're a little bit like that church in Ephesus, perhaps we're a little bit like that church in Smyrna, now we have to ask ourselves, are we a little bit like this church in Pergamum? What was the church in Pergamum like? Well, the city of Pergamum was about 36 miles north of the last church that we looked at, the church in Smyrna. I said that this was like a postal clerk's route. You would travel from Ephesus and you'd go about 35 miles north along the coast and you'd eventually hit Smyrna and you go from Smyrna about 36 miles north and eventually you're going to hit Pergamum. It's also known as Pergamos. That's the feminine version of it. But it was 36 miles north of Smyrna. It was located 15 miles inland in the Caicos River Valley. It was built on a great conical hill overlooking this broad river valley. Now that automatically makes it different from the two churches we've already looked at. We said that Ephesus was a port city. All of the major ships of the day could dock in Ephesus. It was an important port. Now, over time, we said that that harbor began to silt up and all of the commerce moved from Ephesus where? Up the coast to Smyrna, which was on an inlet. It was the safest harbor in the ancient world, at least in this portion of the world in Asia. So these were two port cities. They were very commercial. They were very cosmopolitan. They were corrupt. And that's one of the reasons why the Christians were suffering as they were. But they were very important commercial posts. That was not the case with Pergamum. Pergamum was not a commercial. It was, as I said, 15 miles inland. But interestingly enough, it was the most important of all the cities mentioned here in the book of Revelation, the seven churches at least. It was the most important. Now you say, well, why was it the most important? It was the most important because it was the capital of the Roman province of Asia. This was the capital city. And what's more, it had been the capital city for a very long time. Uh, it had originally been a part of the Macedonian Empire, which you know had been greatly expanded by Alexander the Great. And when Alexander the Great died at a very young age, in his 30s, his vast empire was divided into various portions, some of which was given to what were known as the Seleucids. And the Seleucid Empire reigned over this portion of the world for several hundred years. So this was part of the ancient Seleucid Empire. Uh, they took over in about 282 B.C. About 133 B.C., the last of the Seleucid dynasty rulers, a man by the name of Attalus III, died. And because he had allied himself with Rome, he deeded or willed all of his property to the Roman Empire. And so what had been part of Alexander the Great's empire and had been the capital of that portion of his empire passed into the hands of the Seleucids. They had made Pergamum the, capture, the capital of their empire. And when this passed into the hands of Rome, and this became the Roman province of Asia, they decided to keep this, again, as the capital of this portion of their empire. So this city had been a capital, a political capital for a very long time, very much like London today. London has been the political capital of England for a very long time. Time. Well, that's the way it was for Pergamum. So it was an important city, even though it was a great port city, it was where you had the seat of government. All the power was located here. It had a number of outstanding features as the capital. It had a great library, the second greatest library in the world. The only one that surpassed it was the 
library in Alexandria. So this was a great library. There's one interesting story associated with this library as well in Pergamum. It had over 200,000 volumes in it. And uh, at a time before the Romans took over, the Seleucid king desperately wanted his library to be greater than the one in Alexandria. And so what he tried to do was to hire the librarian in Alexandria, who was the most famous scholar of the time, to come and be his librarian. And he made him basically an offer that he couldn't refuse. It was great pay, great benefits, the whole nine yards. But when Ptolemy, the king of Egypt, found out about this, he was so angry that he decided to imprison his librarian. He, he, he locked him away, quite literally, in an ivory tower, as it were, and wouldn't let him go. And then he did something else. He put an embargo on all papyrus being shipped up here to Pergamum. Now, of course, in those days, papyrus had to be grown in Egypt. That's where it was primarily grown, along the banks of the Nile. And that's what was used to write books on. So if you're not getting any more papyrus, guess what? You can't expand your library to make it greater than the one in Alexandria. So Ptolemy thought that he had won. But the Seleucids were brilliant. They decided, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. They decided that they would not use papyrus. They began to write their books on animal skins. The ancient word for this has come down to us as parchment. And so parchment was invented here in Pergamum. And this library continued to flourish. And as you know, parchment was far more durable than papyrus. And so eventually the whole world went to parchment over papyrus. Well, that all happened here in this city of Pergamum, the birthplace of parchment in the third century BC. So it had a great library, second only to the library in Alexandria. It was a great religious center. There was a massive temple to Zeus that was built into the hillside. It looked like a giant throne. We'll talk about that in a moment. It was over 40 feet high. It had a magnificent frieze. That frieze is uh, still visible. We'll talk about that in a minute today. It is preserved in Berlin, Germany. But it was built into the hillside, looked like a great throne, and you could always see sacrifices and smoke being wafted up over the city from this great temple dedicated to Zeus. There were, of course, temples to all kinds of gods in this Greco-Roman culture, but there were two in particular here in Pergamum that the city was known for, this one to Zeus and the other to Asclepius Sotor, that is Asclepius the Savior. Asclepius was the god of healing. This is where people went if you had some sort of a malady, if you were afflicted with leprosy or whatever it meant, you went to Pergamum and you would go to the temple of Asclepius, Asclepius the Savior. Now you can just imagine what it was like for those early Christians to, refer, to hear people referring to somebody else as the Savior when they knew very well that Jesus was the one who, wherever he went, drove out sickness and death, opened the eyes of the blind, cleansed lepers, made the lame to walk, and so forth. So it would have been very difficult for the Christians in this kind of an environment when the city was known for another Savior besides Jesus Christ. To profess Jesus as the Savior could get you into a great deal of trouble in Pergamum. So it was... Uh, a city that was renowned for its temples, particularly these two. Incidentally, the symbol for Asclepius was the serpent. The serpent. The serpent on the pole. 
It was the capital, as I said, and because it was the capital of this portion of the Roman Empire, the province of Asia, it also became a seat for the cult of emperor worship or Caesar worship in the first century. We said that this was not uncommon. We saw that there was a great temple to Caesar and to the god Roma or the goddess Roma in the church in Smyrna or in the city of Smyrna. Well, here they uh, had the great cult of emperor worship as well. And because this was so important to the Roman Empire, the proconsul here, the governor of this portion of the empire, was given a special right that was reserved only for a very few Roman governors. Not everybody got this. The Romans were very important about law. And they, were very poor. they were very particular about um, protecting the rights of their citizens. But from time to time, governors were given specific powers, and that was the case here in Pergamum. The proconsul here was granted the right of us gladii. It meant the right of the sword. The proconsul here in Pergamum had the power to execute somebody on the spot by the sheer power of his own authority. In other words, they didn't have to go through a trial. Even if you were a Roman citizen, you didn't have to go. You had no right to a trial. If the governor decided that you were going to be put to death, you would be put to death immediately. The right of the sword. Only a few governors had it but it had been given to the proconsul here in Pergamum. Now, as I said, there was this magnificent temple and frieze, and it's been reconstructed, the greater portion of it, in the Pergamum Museum in Berlin. If you go to Berlin, you can actually see it. It is a magnificent structure. This is not the best picture of it, but you get an idea of what it looks like. That was the Temple of Zeus. It was an absolutely magnificent, as I said, sort of built like a throne into the hillside where these sacrifices were being offered with this magnificent frieze around the bottom. That was built about 100 years before John is writing this book. So, no, no, that was built after the war. That was built after the war. Now, what is interesting is that this church is described, or at least this city, excuse me, is described in a very particular way. Look at verse 13. Jesus says, I know where you dwell. He's writing to the people there in Pergamum. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And he comes back to that a well. Again, he says, he refers to a place where Satan dwells, where Satan also has his throne. So it's believed by many scholars that what's being referred to here was this great temple to Zeus. Now, it could have been a combination of any number of things. But the point we need to take away from it is that Pergamum was a very bad place. It was a bad, bad place, particularly for Christians. You had this temple to Asclepius, the Savior. You had this throne that was dedicated here to uh, Zeus. And everyone was expected to give their allegiance and say their prayers to these deities. And in addition to all of that, of course, you have this cult of emperor worship. Everybody, at least on the emperor's birthday, was expected to offer up sacrifices and incense to the emperor. And if you refused to do so, because the proconsul had the right of the sword, you could be put to death on the spot. So this was a very difficult place for Christians. And because it was the political capital, it was a high-profile place. You had to be very careful what you were doing which I think helps us to understand what was going on here and why Jesus appears as He does to this church. It was a place of persecution, 
In fact, there's a reference here to one who was persecuted. We talked about Polycarp last week. There is a mention here to a fellow by the name of Antipas. We don't know anything more about him other than the fact that Jesus refers to him as my faithful servant who was killed where Satan dwells. So this was a place of active persecution where people are literally being put to death. Now, as I said, Jesus appears to all of these churches in one way or another, normally in some image drawn from the first chapter of the book. In the case of Ephesus, Jesus appears to the church there as the one who walks among the seven lampstands and holds the seven stars in his hands, remember? And the seven stars represented the churches, these seven churches and their guardian angels. It was a reminder to the church in Ephesus that regardless of what they were going through, God held them in the palm of his hand. To the church in Smyrna, where there had been active persecution and people like Polycarp were being put to the death, we are told that Jesus appeared how? as the one who holds the keys to death and to Hades. That's how Jesus appeared to them. A reminder to them that even if they had to face the first death because Jesus Christ was master of life, they would not face the second death. So that's why Jesus appears as he does to that church. How does he appear to the church here in Pergamum? Well, take a look at the first verse that we read today. Verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp, two-edged sword. Now, who was it in Pergamum that had the sharp, two-edged sword? The proconsul, the governor. He was the one who had the right to put people to death. Jesus appears to this church as the one who holds the two-edged sword as a reminder that regardless of what the governor thinks he can do by his satanic power, the reality is God ultimately is the one who decides. God is sovereign over the times and the seasons of every man, woman, and child. It's a reminder that God is ultimately in control. When Girolamo Savonarola died in Florence in 1498, he was a forerunner of the Reformation. Many people think that he was the one who laid the stage for Martin Luther and all that Luther would do when he nailed the 95 Theses to the door of Wittenberg Cathedral. When Savannarola was condemned to death by the Roman Catholic authorities, he was a Dominican friar, but he was preaching against the abuses of the church. Uh, he was preaching against the selling of indulgences, many of the same things that Luther was preaching against. And as a result, he was condemned to death. And the story goes that as he was taken out to the place of execution, the presiding bishop on that occasion came up and began to read a document. It was basically a curse against those who had broken the laws of the church and what he said to Savannarola was that I separate you from the church militant and from the church triumphant. And he said, do you have any words to say in response? And Savannarola replied, from the church militant, yes, but from the church triumphant, never. That is not within your power. In other words, you may take my life, let goods and kindreds go, as Luther put it, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, but... God's truth abideth still. You may be able to take my life. You may be able to make me endure the first death, but to separate me from the church triumphant is not within your power. That belongs to another. Well, that's why Jesus appears to this church in Pergamum as he does, as the one who holds the sharp two-edged sword is because ultimately our times, our seasons, my friends, are in God's hands. It does not matter what the world can do to us. They can kill the body. They cannot kill the soul. That does not belong to them. 
And that's why Jesus appears as he does to this church. Now, that image of a double-edged sword has a double-edged message. On the one hand, it is meant to be a message of encouragement to this church. But it is also, as made very clear here in this text, it is meant to be a message of warning. Because there's a problem in this church. Take a look at verses 14 and following. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, for if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with what? The sword of my mouth. So the very same sword that is meant to be an encouragement to these people who are facing persecution is also meant to be a warning to them that if they tolerate any kind of false teaching, if they begin to collude with the world, the same sword which Jesus Christ will wield against their enemies, he will take and wield against them. So it's a two-edged sword with a two-edged message. So it was a good church, but it was by no means a perfect church. Jesus said it had a problem. What was the problem in Pergamum? They tolerated doctrinal error. Doctrine matters, my friends. It's not simply that we believe, it's what we believe that is important. Now there are two errors here that are mentioned, and we've already referred to them because they appear earlier in these letters. The first error is the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, we really don't know what that is. It's a combination of two words, Nikon and Laos, which means to triumph over. Laos means the people. So many people have said this is the rise of clericalism in the early church. That, that was the problem here, where the clergy are sort of lording it over the lay people. That became a problem. That became a problem particularly in the Middle Ages. That was not a problem in the early church. So it's unlikely that this is the rise of clericalism that is being referred to. But because this sin of the Nicolaitans is combined with the sin of Balaam, chances are they are probably connected. It's probably a variation on the theme. So what was the sin of Balaam? Well, anybody who was a Jew would have known the story of Balaam. If you go back to the book of Numbers in the Old Testament, Balaam was a false prophet. When Israel was invading the land of Moab and intent on taking over that land, the king of Moab had seen that Israel had triumphed over a number of her enemies. And so he hired a false prophet, a wicked prophet, to go out and curse the Israelites as they approached. And to make a long story short, what happened was God took over Balaam, and every time he opened his mouth, instead of cursing, blessing came out. Now, Balaam wasn't particularly happy about that because there was a lot of money involved. He'd been hired by the king of Moab. But every time he opened his mouth, what happened was that blessing rather than cursing came forth. And so he went to Balak and he said, I've got another plan for you. He said, no matter what I do, it's not going to work. But I've got a plan. If you really want to defeat the Israelites, here's how you do it. He said, the women of Moab are absolutely beautiful. Send them out to seduce the men of Israel. Have them engage in sexual activity, intermarry with these women, and entice them to worship your gods rather than their God. And that is exactly what happened. And that became known as the sin of Balaam. 
You can read about it, as I said, in the book of Numbers. Well, you see that that's being what's referred to here in Revelation chapter 2. Look at what he says. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. Therefore, repent, for if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. What was probably happening here was this was a church that had heard the gospel. They understood that they were to separate themselves from the world. When I say separate themselves from the world, they were in the world, but they were not to be like the world. Jesus never said that he was going to take his followers out of the world. You and I are called to be salt and light in the world. But the problem was that they were accommodating themselves to the culture because they were facing persecution. Sometimes it's easier to just get along, go along. And that's what was happening here in this church in Pergamum. Many people were just sort of going along and being like the culture. You couldn't tell any difference between the Christians in Pergamum and the pagans in Pergamum. So what is Pergamum a picture of? If Smyrna is the persecuted church, if, if, if Ephesus is the church that has sort of grown cold in its love, what is the picture of the church in Pergamum? It's the worldly church. It's the church that has accommodated itself to the culture around it. And if it does not repent, Jesus said, he's going to do what? He is going to bring judgment upon it. Well, it raises the question, what happens when the church becomes like the world? What good is it? This is the problem, I think, today. When I think about the church in the West in particular, when I think of the church, I think of the church here in Pergamum. The church in the Western culture today has accommodated itself so much to the culture that we're not persecuted at all for the sake of the gospel. We're not finding ourselves being robbed of our homes or thrown into prison or worse yet put to death because, well, we're not really offensive to the culture, are we? We go along and we get along. We are worldly Christians. Now, of course, this is the problem in the mainline liberal denominations. Nobody can deny it. We all recognize that. The mainline Protestant denominations, you know what they are. They have tolerated error for a long time. They have denied the authority of Scripture. They don't believe that all Scripture is theopanustos, God, breathed and profitable for teaching, for rebuking, and for correcting in righteousness. We know this. We've, we've been down this road. We've experienced it for ourselves the mainline Protestant denominations as a whole have embraced the cultural norms. And because they do not speak against the world, they do not suffer persecution from the world. But on the other hand, nor do they have anything of value to offer to the world. Which explains why, in large measure, they are declining as they are. Let me just give you one example. This week, Catherine Ragsdale, who is the dean of the Episcopal Divinity School in Cambridge, Massachusetts, one of the seminaries of the Episcopal Church, was just appointed. She's a lesbian priest partnered. Uh, she has just been appointed the president of the National Abortion Federation. Just this week. And this is what she said when she accepted the honor. Honor. She said, abortion providers are some of my personal heroes. They are modern day saints. And then they wonder why we left. Now, you see, what is that? That is a picture of the church that has accommodated itself to the world. And truth be known, you, you can't tell the difference between them, can you? 
Now, we sit here and we shake our heads and we think to ourselves, those terrible people. But I want to submit to you that the problem is not just with the liberal end of the church. I want to suggest to you that even the conservative evangelical churches today have, have accommodated themselves to the culture. You say, well, now how has that taken place? Let me suggest to you a number of ways. The problem for the conservative evangelicals is not an issue of authority. That's the problem for the liberal churches. The problem for us in the conservative evangelical wing of the church is not authority, it's the sufficiency. It's not the authority of Scripture, it's the sufficiency of Scripture. If you ask many evangelicals today, do you believe that the Bible is the Word of God and contains all things necessary to salvation? Absolutely. Do you believe that it is sufficient for the church's work today? And the answer you will often get is, well, not sufficient. In other words, you, you need the Bible, but you need the Bible plus, plus, plus all of these other things because, after all, we live in a very different world from the one in which the Apostle Paul lived and moved and operated. And so we have to accommodate ourselves to, to, the, to the culture's way of communicating, for example, in order to communicate the message of the gospel. Now, let me tell you something. That is a slippery slope as well. So what has happened in American religion today? Well, it's become entertainment religion. If you're going to get people in the doors, you've got to entertain them. I remember when I lived in the upper part of the state, this was, oh gosh, 25 years ago, we were driving to Charlotte, North Carolina on one occasion. We passed this enormous church. It was Pepto-Bismol pink. I mean, it was just enormous church. And it was a sign out front that said, you've never seen a church like this before. Well, that much was true. <laughs> and then it said, come and take a look on the inside. And, here below, we serve free Starbucks coffee. Now, there's an old expression, what you win them with is what you win them to. In other words, if you win them with entertainment, they're going to expect entertainment. And we're seeing that in many churches today. You can see this in the music. Oftentimes, the music, they give up the great hymns of the church, for some of these songs, I call them 7-Eleven songs. Now, I want to be very clear here. I don't have anything against contemporary Christian music. Some of it is quite good, particularly the Town and Getty stuff. But some of it is just schmaltz. It's worthless. I call them 7-Eleven songs because it's seven words repeated 11 times. <laughs> just over and over and over again. Let me give you an example. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Hallelujah, hallelujah. That sounds lovely, doesn't it? That's not a hymn, folks. That's a mantra. But you see, it pulls on the heartstrings. It tugs at your emotions. And you say, oh, isn't that lovely? But there's no real substance to it, you see. Ah, oh, but you see, it's what people like, so that's what we've got to sing. We accommodate ourselves to the world. We've given up the preaching of the Word to do skits. That's what many churches are doing now today. They'll have some sort of a play up there on the stage because people are so used to watching television and that sort of thing that they want to be entertained. They don't want to be preached to. And if you are going to preach to me, by golly, you better make it short and you better make it sweet because people don't have long attention spans these days. How many of you would like to hear a word from God? How would you like to hear God speak to you? Wouldn't that be something? Well, he does it every Sunday. 
If you listen to the sermon, now it takes work to listen to the sermon, and it may be that somebody's not on today. They, they may be having a rough day. You know, preachers have that from time to time. But if you listen to any sermon that is preached at St. Philip's, I guarantee you, you will take away something that is a word from the Lord for you. But see, we've given up on the preaching of the word, and what we want is something short and sweet. We want to skit. We want to be entertained. We have coffee shops. I think this is true when it comes to architecture, and I'm going to talk about architecture in just a minute. But I have noticed, I was at a diocesan convention, I'm not going to tell you where, maybe you can guess it yourself, but a church in this diocese, and we were given coffee, and the sanctuary was here, and the coffee area was right out there where our coffee bar is. And everybody wandered into the church with their coffee, and we're all there sitting in front of the, I guess it was the table, the altar there, and there's screens everywhere, and we're all sitting there, and uh, people are knocking over their coffee, and people are talking. There's no sense of sacred space. And yet every time we've had a convention in a church that is traditionally designed, it's really interesting to know people will drink their coffee, but before they come in, they'll put it in the waste paper bin. Because there's a sense that if you're coming into this, there's something about the architecture that evokes a sense of the transcendent. Seems to me that we've lost that. In the preaching of the word, there's oftentimes an emphasis upon success versus salvation. It's all about being successful in this life. An emphasis on felt needs versus real spiritual needs. And oftentimes, the rise we see of the signs and wonders movement it is an emphasis upon these felt needs. That is particularly true among Pentecostals. Let me just throw two pictures up there on the screen. That is the Willow Creek Church. It's one of the largest churches in all of America. I want you to just take a look at that. What does that look like to you? That looks like a concert hall, doesn't it? There are big screens up there. You could hold any kind of a service there, not necessarily a religious service. Anything could be done. You could have a magnificent play there on the stage. Contrast that with this. Do you see the difference? Do you see what's trying to be evoked? Do you see what's trying to be taught here? What's the central thing that you see? An altar with a cross. What's the highest point in the building? It's this pulpit from which the Word of God is preached. David Wells, who is a professor at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, has written extensively on this, when the church becomes like the world. And he's referring to evangelicals, not to liberals. And this is what he had to say. He said, when we listen to the church today, at least in the West, we are often left with the impression that Christianity actually has very little to do with truth. Christianity is only about feeling better about ourselves, about leaping over our difficulties, about being more satisfied, about having better relationships, about getting on with our mothers-in-law. Not that that's a bad thing, but about understanding teenage rebellion, about coping with our unreasonable bosses, about finding greater sexual satisfaction, about getting rich, about receiving our own private miracles, and much else besides. It is about everything except truth. And yet this truth, personally embodied in Christ, gives us a place to stand in order to deal with the complexities of life such as broken relationships, teenage rebellion, and job insecurities. See, the problem is not just for the liberals who have accommodated themselves to the culture. The conservatives have accommodated themselves to the culture as well. And what you win them with is what you win them to. And the question is this, have we become like that? Are we a worldly church? Well, what's the remedy for a worldly church? 
What's the antidote for a church that becomes like the culture? We'll come back next week. You know there's always a cliffhanger. But you come back next week and we're going to take a look at what Jesus' remedy is for this church in Pergamum because it is a worldly church. And the problem is not just with them, the problem is with us. We are called to be salt and light, my friends. Let me just give you this final quote from John Stott. We are to be salt and light. God intends us to penetrate the world. Christian salt has no business to remain snugly in elegant little ecclesiastical salt cellars. Our place is to be rubbed into the secular community as salt is rubbed into meat to stop it going bad. And when society does go bad, we Christians tend to throw up our hands in pious horror and reproach the non-Christian world. But should we not rather reproach ourselves? One can hardly blame unsalted meat for going bad. It cannot do anything else. The real question to ask is, where is the salt? So where is the salt today? Let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus' words to these churches. There's something in every one of these letters for us today. We ask ourselves that we become like the church in Pergamum and we accommodated ourselves to the world. Are we like the church in Smyrna? Are we willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel or are we too concerned with offending of people that we are guilty of offending Jesus Christ? Are we like that church in Ephesus still going through the motions, doing all the right things, but unfortunately our first love has grown cold and we are doing them for all the wrong reasons. Lord, if this be the case with us, and in some way it has to be, we pray that you would convict us. That as Jesus calls on this church to repent, so we might repent, turn away from our worldliness and come back to our first love that we may be salt and light in this broken and needy world. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.